This is Office Detox. Personal stories reflected in this podcast are true, but details have been changed to protect the companies and people involved. Hey guys, before I get started on this episode, I wanted to talk about inequity in the workplace, which is one of the biggest issues there is. And it involves race, gender ID, religion, sexuality, ability, etc. And for the most part, I am not at all qualified to speak on any of these. Instead, I want to highlight those voices in the second season of the podcast. But I am qualified to talk about women at work, so here it is. The U.S. Customs Office at the airport is an intimidating place. With gray walls, eagles and stars decorated the walls in a minimalist way, the officers there are trained to intimidate, and they have an important job to protect their borders. Imagine what that intimidation training, practice, and role play must look like, hmm. I was eight months pregnant and humongous. I was going over the border to present at a convention in New Orleans. When my husband lost his job and I was three months pregnant, I was forced to work for some people who were narcissists, predators, and that was beyond my best judgment, but I really had no choice. To seal the deal, they asked me to present at this convention in my condition, a command performance, so to speak. Why are you going over the border? A bodybuilder type man with brown short clipped hair asked me. Uh, I'm presenting at a convention. I'm staying for the day, then going right back. I explained, doing my best poker face, trying to appear confident. I definitely did not want to work the convention, but what could I do? When is the baby due? Asked a female officer with a neat brown ponytail and a serious expression. I explained that I was due four weeks away and I had called the airline and they allowed me to travel. Believe me, I wanted to say, the last place I want to be is here eight months pregnant. I even had to go through another airline and they actually said no, and so I had to take the one that said yes. What I wanted to do was to be lying in bed eating crackers and watching Netflix, but the grilling continued. After a while, my aching back, heavy knees, and light head, I realized what they thought I was trying to do. I saw the reason why they were grilling me so hard. They thought my aim was to have my baby on American soil. Apparently, when that happens, the baby gets automatic citizenship, and pregnant women actually do this. But I'm an uninsured Canadian, so why would I basically bankrupt myself by having a baby in the US instead of using the free healthcare I get at home? But I didn't have time to think about those things. All I needed was to get to the convention, make my speech, and turn around and come back. I just wanted to get those things done. After all, I really had no choice. I had no close ties to family to take care of me. My husband was out of a job. We had some savings, but they wouldn't last long. I was out of options, and the bosses knew it. I had to do this no matter what, and I had to make it out that I was just fine with the whole arrangement, play it cool, and make it look easy. And if that was the only thing I had in my life, it wouldn't have been that unmanageable. But that's what I want to talk about as a woman's life in the workplace. There's so many things like this, so many journeys that make a woman's situation difficult. I've heard it compared to a cage. When there's one obstacle, you can overcome it. But when you zoom out and you see so many obstacles, it becomes a cage which traps you in.
Office Detox is a podcast about business and part of the darker side. Most people in business are just decent folks just trying to do their thing. But a small minority of people are toxifying the workplace and the rest of us have to struggle through it. What if we could identify them, detox the office, so the rest of us could do our jobs and live our lives? My name is Stefania Sigurdsson Forbes, and I'm your host of Office Detox. Today we are talking about Bill Gates at Microsoft and the Gates Foundation. The thing about inequity in the workplace, I believe, is that a minority of people put you in situations like I was in, but it affects you strongly. The sources of this podcast include Business Insider and Vanity Fair. You can see references to specific articles in the show notes. Bill and Melinda first met in 1987 when she joined Microsoft as a product manager. She was a younger employee who he flirted with, and it was essentially an office romance. He met her at a conference, and Bill asked her if she could go out two weeks from tonight, later in the parking lot. Melinda gave him her number and asked him to call her close to that day because the way that he was doing it lacked spontaneity. Later that night, he called her again, and she accepted. Melinda and Bill dated for seven years before they wed. Apparently, Melinda's mom didn't think that seeing him was a good idea. I imagine a product manager dating a CEO would be big news, and likely a lot of Melinda's colleagues knew who she was who would not normally. Melinda liked that he was brilliant, curious, and fun. And I get it, there's absolutely nothing like a smart man. When you see a smart man and he is strong and successful, even hotter. Personally, the charisma, humor, and how he treats me as a person are way hotter than six-pack abs, nice biceps, and even a big fat bank account. And I think a lot of women feel that same way, and maybe Melinda did too. They kept a low profile at work and wanted to be private about their connection. In 1993, during their engagement, they traveled to Africa and saw people in extreme poverty. On a walk on a beach in Zanzibar, they started talking about how to use their fortune to help others. That's when the idea that would ultimately become the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation came up. They got married in 1994 in Hawaii on a golf course. The next year, the couple's fancy home, nicknamed Xanadu 2.0, was completed in Medina, Washington. The mansion's estimated worth is $124 million, and that was in 2016. They raised two daughters, Jennifer and Phoebe, and a son, Rory. They raised them Catholic and read to them from a variety of books. They didn't let any of them own a cell phone until they were 14. Their daughter, Jennifer, was a nationally ranked show jumper, and she graduated from Stanford and is now enrolled in medical school. Rory went to the University of Chicago, and Phoebe is still in high school. The second two like to keep a low profile. Each of them will inherit about $10 million of their parents' $98.1 billion fortune, and the rest will go to charitable causes. With the Gates Foundation, the couple tried to work as partners, though Bill was used to being in charge from his Microsoft days. Now let's fast forward several years. On May 3, 2021, the couple made a decision to end their marriage. Quote, After a great deal of thought and a lot of work on our relationship, we have made a decision to end our marriage, Bill Gates said in a tweet. 
Over the last 27 years, we have raised three incredible children and built a foundation that works all over the world to enable people to lead healthy, productive lives. Now, not everyone listening to this knows it, because I know there's a lot of younger listeners out there, but there was a time when Bill Gates was seen as pretty dark. Windows at first was considered a copy of Apple iOS, and people were afraid that there was a monopoly. People didn't like him, and there was almost a sense of glee going around during the antitrust case in the early 90s. There's kind of a Mr. Burns vibe about him. His employees considered him impatient and demanding, but to be fair, that's pretty common in tech, where I have my career, because, yeah, it's just like that. Things change rapidly, and there's constant jockeying for leadership. Over time, his reputation got reinvented with the Gates Foundation and his pledge with other billionaires like Warren Buffett to give their fortunes away. It was incredible and generous. The cynic in me says, hey, it's a PR play, to enhance the stock prices and sales at Microsoft. The open-minded part of me says, maybe Bill had a change of heart, or maybe it was Melinda's influence. After all, she was considered to be the heart of the Gates Foundation. Apparently, Bill pursued women at the Gates Foundation a few times, once emailing an employee to ask her for dinner, and he wanted to take another woman out for dinner during a business trip. Apparently, the woman did not feel pressure, but there was a deep imbalance of power. I know from my own life, you sometimes feel like this command performance when your boss is flirting with you, and it can be startlingly awkward and uncomfortable. Apparently, his infidelities were an open secret in the office. No one knows if these were real or if they factored into her decision to file for divorce. What is known is that she was unhappy with how Bill dealt with a sexual harassment claim against his longtime money manager, Michael Larson. So the money manager actually had his own money management firm that only managed the Gates fortune. So that's how close they were. Larson faced a sexual harassment allegation against a woman who managed a bike shop that was partially owned by Raleigh Capital, a firm that Cascade had invested in. Again, this is a major imbalance of power. The woman hired a lawyer who wrote a letter to the Gates explaining how Larson had been sexually harassing her, and she said she would pursue legal action. She eventually settled. Melinda Gates was not satisfied with how those claims were handled and she wanted there to be an outside investigation. Her spokeswoman said, Melinda unequivocally condemns disrespectful and inappropriate conduct in the workplace. She was unaware of most of these allegations given her lack of ownership and control. Imagine how it feels that the Gates Foundation outwardly supports women in need, yet in the case of women closest to her, they are left vulnerable. In 2019, an investigation was opened by Microsoft's board after they were notified that Gates had sought an intimate relationship with a company employee in the year 2000. Gates stepped down from the board at Microsoft amid the probe into his relationship with staff members. Apparently, Melinda was haunted by Bill's relationship with Jeffrey Epstein. I mean, can you imagine your husband is hanging out with one of the world's most famous convicted pedophiles? Apparently, the two met numerous times over the years, starting from 2011. In a now famous story, he and Gates were joined one evening by Dr. Eva Anderson Dubin, a former Miss Sweden who Epstein used to date. 
and her 15-year-old daughter. Regarding that night, Gates sent an email about Epstein to his colleagues. His lifestyle is very different and kind of intriguing, although it would not work for me. He said he stayed late into the night on this occasion. Although he denies that the email didn't mean any interest or approval, the get-together with these three combined with Epstein's track record is suspicious and very uncomfortable. On the other side, Epstein is known to be a person trying to name drop and put himself in high places. Bill later said that the meetings and the relationship were a mistake. So this is part of the cage for women. On one hand, we have Melinda Gates, a smart woman who is not Hollywood beautiful and is the and has a ton of heart marrying Bill Gates. With the biggest charitable foundation in the world, she is now a powerful woman. At the same time, she is openly disrespected at meetings by her husband and quote-unquote co-founder. On one hand, the Gates Foundation supports women. As I can see here on the website, it says prioritizing gender equality can help us build back stronger from COVID-19. But there isn't gender equality for the investments that Michael Larson deals with and the vast power imbalance when Bill, as CEO and celebrity, is flirting with regular people. So it seems like virtue signaling, where close up, the upper echelons of the Gates Foundation and Microsoft are just as sexist as anywhere else. In my 20s, I used to regale my friends over drinks, over the interest I got, which could be seen as funny until it was not. Here are a few. I'm at the hotel check-in and the person assumes that me and my boss, who's a married man and 25 years older than me, want to have adjoining rooms. I am making labels for event attendees and the IT guy, 20 years older than me and married, comes into my room to help me putting the paper tags into the plastic holders. He leans in to kiss me as our hands touch a label at the same time. I move him out of my room, pushing him and his computer out at once, saying, I'm going to have to shut you down now. I'm driving to a meeting, listening to music on the highway. A man 40 years older than me comes up to me saying we were chasing each other down the highway playing cat and mouse and that we were meant to meet at this hotel. I just walked away quietly. I'm on the road with a sales guy and he purposely sends his luggage to my room and shows up to my door with his boxers on. I roll his luggage over back to him and close the door on his face. I'm in a meeting where I think I'm playing this important strategic role and my boss quietly says, Sit across from the prospective client since he likes looking at you. At the Christmas party with everyone's wife, after several of them had made advances to me that I didn't take them up on, but sometimes other women did, I felt like I was talking about Santa Claus to kids who still believe, except Santa Claus was their marriage being intact and monogamous. And I don't want to pull too strongly at the strings of people's relationships. Maybe people had open marriages or understood arrangements. Maybe there are some young women in my situation who were looking for such an invitation. Maybe some of the guys were LGBTQ and were just trying to approach me because it was culturally acceptable. I was single at the time and I just wanted someone a bit closer to my age who was more my type. I hate the narrative where women have no desire for closeness or have no sexuality. That was definitely not going on in my case, haha. And I too am certainly not Hollywood beautiful. 
I'm just pretty average and um, I think it was really my age more than anything else. Overall, at that time in my life, people were not really seeing me as a professional when all that was going on. They were just seeing who I was physically. If I was to talk to any other young women out there, I would warn you, just know that when you're in a corporate environment as a young woman, you're gonna be likely seen as something physical first. Yes, you can still be a professional, you can still do great things, but that's something that you have to overcome. So I talked about the bars on a cage. The bar on the cage I had when I was pregnant and vulnerable. The bar I had on my cage when I was young, single and vulnerable. And the bar on my cage about not knowing how to golf, getting in the way of networking. The bar of being given a coat or a FedEx package, no matter how senior I am. The bar of being asked if I plan to have kids soon in a job interview, and many more. People talk about how it's just one thing and that I need to buck up since we all have little things in one way or another, but the addition of them all together is overwhelming. So where are we now? Everyone talks about the post Me Too era and about Hollywood starlets enduring abuse and speaking out. But I think there's a much wider Me Too that is not being talked about. It is us regular middle-class people trying to make a living that are enduring a lot. And you are my people. I am just another middle-class person trying to make it happen. And that's who I'm really speaking to. According to Catalyst, an organization dedicated to building workplaces that include women, inclusive leadership is key. There are five hallmarks of inclusion, including being valued, being trusted, being authentic, where you have psychological safety, where you can feel like you have different views without being penalized, and psychological safety in terms of risk-taking, where you think that you can address tough issues and take risks. The organization that encourages inclusive leaders lead both outward and inward. I think outward is how we often think of it, where you have accountability, ownership, and allyship. It's where you, you behave to ensure team members are treated fairly and are able to grow. Leading inward is the interesting part. It's where you spend time exploring your own biases as a leader. It takes a hard look at who you are and your own ability to act courageously and learn to reflect on who you are. That includes curiosity, humility, and courage. So Bill Gates, rather than virtue signaling to the outside world with Women's Initiative and the Bill Gates Foundation, may want to explore his own biases that are happening closer to home. And maybe people in his situation who are successful in what they do, maybe in our culture, we just really don't focus on humility in that way. And as for me, I could have really used some allyship in my struggles. I feel like our culture here in North America is a warrior type culture. And you want to be shown as bulletproof. You want to be a good warrior, strong warrior. And especially when you're in business, you don't want to point out these differences that you have and you end up struggling in silence. But instead of battling every single day, what would happen if we thought of our work teams as tribes? Ones where we helped each other be stronger together. Wouldn't it take that curiosity, humility, and courage? So if we are thinking of people who are in these different cages and all have their different bars, if we make some effort to understand 
what it is like in their situation. For me as a woman, or as a new immigrant, as a religious minority, as a man in a primarily female environment, maybe a stay-at-home dad, where there's stay-at-home moms all around them, maybe making their lives painful. As a person with chronic pain, as an older person, if we all spend time trying to understand each other, wouldn't that make it better for all? After reading Me and White Supremacy by Leila Syed, it was eye-opening when I saw my own biases against people of color, and I hated seeing those sides of myself. So calling out myself, there were some hiring situations where I used those biases, and that was me being toxic without realizing it. But exploring it and airing those out helped me better ally, and I hope to continue that journey in the future. And these approaches from Catalyst, they're not dramatic fights, they're adjustments and inner work. If in inclusive leadership can live aside our warrior culture, that is something really powerful to be explored, and it would be wonderful to find out. Well, dear listeners, we've done it again. We are through 11 of our dirty dozen. Next episode, I'm going to explore the fact that even though it is a small percentage of people making our life difficult, often that work-life negativity goes right to the top. And a final word. If you're alone and you feel like nobody cares, it's not true. You matter, and they're the ones that are wrong. If you want to learn more about this project, please, please follow me on Facebook at Gravity Hub Team or on Twitter at Stefania Forbes. You can also find me on email at stefania at gravityhub.ca. Lots of love.